What book of the Bible are we in right now? Luke, yeah, you guys are good. <laughs> Just trying to see if you're awake this morning. So yes, I'm enjoying learning from the Gospel of Luke. I hope that you are too. This morning our scripture reader is Jabari. Welcome to Jabari. I'm glad that you're here. Good morning. Good morning. And, uh, Jabari's going to read God's word for us as you all follow along. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius, 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 being governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee. He gave me an easy one this morning. Thank you, Dave. (laughs) And his brother Philip, tetrarch of the reign of, say that again? The region of Etoria. The region of Etoria. And Tachanasus. Oh, Lord. And Lanius's Tetrarch of Abilene. That's in Texas. She should have that one. During the high priesthood of Annas and. That's not in Texas, Gary. Caiaphas. Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance of the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made law. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowd that come out to the baptism by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, and what shall we do? And, they, and he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by, tr- by threats or by false ac- accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation that all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we are thankful that this is your word. We, we trust it. We know that it is perfect. And we know that it is our source and authority for life and for how this church is to operate. So, Father, I pray this morning we give close attention. May the Holy Spirit be our teacher and our guide. May the preacher be able to step out of the way so that we can hear the word of the Lord. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. People do all kinds of strange things for attention. Weird things, okay? Even people who are famous. This is Brian Williams. He was on the way to being the greatest anchor in news at the time, and he was over in Iraq with the war, and he was, while he was doing a report, a nearby helicopter was shot down. Well, later he told the story as if he was in the helicopter, and he got shot down with it and survived just to get attention. Of course, everybody immediately caught that that wasn't true, and he apologized for it, but his career pretty much ended after that. Uh, Little Bow Wow, famous rapper, was, took a, a picture of somebody else's private jet to make it sound like it was on his own, and then he got on the plane and flew commercial, and of course the fan caught on, and hey, here's Little Bow Wow acting like he's on a private jet, and he's right beside me in commercial. 
People do weird things for attention. Anybody know who these two ladies are? Tanya Harding and Nancy uh, Kerrigan, two of the top uh, skaters in the world at the time, both vying for the gold medal. Of course, Tanya Harding, you know, thought her only chance, the only thing stand between her and a gold medal was Nancy Harding, so she supposedly got some people, some thugs, to kind of rub up her ankle, you know, and, uh, and so anyway, she still didn't end up winning. So in order to get attention, because her career was flailing, she decided to go into boxing. <laughs> Quite a transition from figure skating to boxing. Uh, it didn't go so well. <laughs> she got beat up pretty bad. People do all kinds of weird things to get attention. Now, John the Baptist was weird. There's no doubt about it. But he wasn't trying to draw attention to himself. He was trying to be weird to point attention to Jesus. And of course, that's the role of every Christian is to point, no matter how weird you are, that the direction, the spotlight, the attention should go to Christ. So we're going to divide this passage up into four quick spots here. First of all, there's John's ministry was revolutionary. John's ministry was revolutionary. Secondly, we see that John's message was repentance, and that John's meekness was refreshing. And the fourth point will be John's Messiah was righteous. So let's jump right in. This passage does not start once upon a time. It does not start that way, because this is not fiction. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a legend. This is not a myth. Luke is a historian, and as we talked about in the introduction, he did a better job documenting history than most historians during his era. And so he's not just telling a story, he's telling his history. And it says right here, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Back then, they didn't say 1986, you know, 1214. They didn't do it by years like we have now. They did it by a certain year of a certain leader, and people use that as the reference spot. Now, if you look at this list of world leaders, Tiberius Caesar, the head of the Roman Empire, not a good guy. Pontius Pilate, as you know from the end of the story, not a good guy. Herod, all the Herods were maniacs, psychopaths. They killed each other out of envy and jealousy. And you think about this is the world leaders at the time. And, and then Philip, his brother, was over one region, and Lysenius was up over a nearby region. And those guys were very, very corrupt. David Guzik, one of my favorite theologians, says it this way, Luke gave more than a chronological measure, measure. He also told us something of the tenor of the times. Tiberius was an emperor known for his cruelty and severity. He killed anybody who disagreed with him. He was one of the leaders in crucifixion during that time. Pontius Pilate was also renowned for his bare, brutal massacres of the Jewish people in Judea and his insensitivity towards the Jews. The rulers from the family of Herod the Great, Herod Philip and Lysanias, they were known for their corruption and also known for their cruelty. Imagine the parallel like today. We think we have it bad, but imagine if the President of the United States was Adolf Hitler, the Governor of Texas was Mussolini, the Mayor of Houston was Pol Pot, and the Mayor of Pearland was any other dictator you want to pick, okay? Imagine that was the world we live in. We think we have it bad now. This was the world that God called John the Baptist to be a revolutionary. I'm on every level of government. That's why I list all those Seven leaders, and we, what do we know about the number of seven in the Bible? <laughs> Completeness, perfection. The world was perfectly, completely evil as far as the government at this time. And again, we, we think we have it bad, and this is where God called John the Baptist. Even the religious leaders, number six and seven, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was the high priest, very corrupt. The Romans didn't, didn't like him, so they said, we're going to make your son-in-law the, the, the high priest, but everybody knew that Annas was still pulling the strings because you only had one high priest at a time. But the Bible says that they both were because both were one, one was a puppet and the other was pulling the strings. And all of it was about temple tax. All of it was to get as much money at the big festivals as possible and to line their own pockets. So it's during a time when the world's authorities are absolutely evil that God calls John the Baptist to be a revolutionary. And you can see John saying to God, hey, not now. <laughs> I could get killed. And of course, we know that he did. God calls us to do difficult things during difficult times. 
A lot of times we want to wait till the storm kind of passes by. Maybe we'll speak up later when things aren't so controversial. But God says, hey, just like Esther, you were born for such a time as this. God doesn't call us to be light in a world full of lights. He calls us to be light in the deepest, darkest times. And, and while we can get discouraged about the headlines of our newspaper, we could be encouraged. And you know what? We know that the light shines the brightest when the world becomes the darkest. You know, it, it's interesting that if you have a flock of sheep, if there's a wolf amongst them, that's a bad thing. But what if you're a, a lamb amongst wolves? And you're, you are called to cry out to the wolves to repent. This is exactly where God put John the Baptist. And this is where he put us. We don't need to shy away from being the minority. Being the only employee at your job who is an outspoken Christian. Being the only student in your classroom who actually reads the Bible and believes that it's true. Being the only person in your neighborhood who on Sunday morning is not washing their car, but actually getting out of the driveway to go to church. And we shouldn't look down on the people in our neighborhood, in our job, in our classroom. We should realize we are called to be the lamb amongst the wolves, the light in the midst of the darkness. So it is during this time that the word of God came to John the Baptist. And you see the word of the Lord or the word of God came to some prophet 109 times in the Old Testament. That's not, that's not an insignificant number. This is the way God spoke, and this is the way we have our Bible today, that through prophets, God spoke and gave revelation. And John is like the last of the Old Testament prophets. His style is much like the Old Testament prophets, as we'll see here in a little bit. He is the son of Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah was a priest in the temple. And when the angel came to him and said, hey, your prayer's been answered, I'm going to give you a son. He's like, what? I don't think so. And he's like, what are you talking about? I am Gabriel. You don't understand I'm sent by God to talk to you and you're going to doubt here? You know what? You just shut up for nine months. You can't talk till the baby's born. And I'm sure the angel said shut up or something along that line. <laughs> Gabriel seemed pretty ticked off when he had that conversation. And so this is the dad. This is his dad, okay? And John the Baptist by now as an adult has heard that story a dozen times every year Passover about how dad couldn't talk for nine months and it was the greatest thing ever according to his wife and all that. And so... He's also called in the wilderness. Isn't that unusual? You're going to bring repentance, revival to the nation? You think you would go to the headquarters, to the population? But he goes out where there's nobody and says, hey, if you want to hear about God, you come out to me. You make the trip out here to this difficult, harsh location. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, the Jordan River, that is. Why would he go there? Because what is he doing? He's baptizing. So he's going up and down the banks of the river, preaching the gospel of repentance. And he's proclaiming a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What is repentance? Repentance literally comes, literally comes from a Greek word that was a military term that a commanding officer would give to his troops that meant about face. You're marching in one direction, and they say about face, or what would be the equivalent in Greek to repent, and everybody turn and start marching the other direction. It wasn't stop. It wasn't just turn around. It was start marching in a new direction. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 3 describes John in a little more detail. So now John wore a, a garment of camel's hair. Does that sound uncomfortable to anybody? It is. It was intentionally uncomfortable. If you remember, many of the Old Testament prophets put on what? Sackcloth. Itchy material. It was meant to be uncomfortable. And then he put on a leather belt. Now, well, today we think, that's no big deal. That was uncommon back then. Usually they just would take a cord and tie it around their robe. But put on a leather belt also meant something. I think Paul maybe even is trying to give an allusion to the belt of truth. It seems like there's some symbolism there as well. But look what he eats, locusts and wild, wild honey. Well, he's got his protein, he's got his carbs, right? He's just got his balanced diet there, but it doesn't sound very tasty. I'm sure the locusts needed all the help they could get. That's why he had to dip them in honey to make them even, where he could even swallow them. But he's eating a very uncomfortable diet, wearing uncomfortable clothes. He's out in an uncomfortable climate. You think there's a pattern here? You think there's something John's trying to tell us by his ministry? Well, he's also... The Bible says that he would be like the new Elijah. In fact, 
Look at what else. It's the second king says about Elijah. That he wore a garment of hair. Doesn't say what kind of hair. Maybe it was camel's hair. We don't know. But he also wore a belt of leather. And that, that was the description of Elijah. And he's coming not only in the spirit of Elijah, but he's the fulfillment of Elijah. That the Bible predicted one like him would come before the Messiah would appear. So he dresses in uncomfortable clothes. He ate an uncomfortable diet. He called people to come out to an uncomfortable desert place to hear an uncomfortable message of repentance. Sorry for the typo there. That would result in uncomfortable lifestyle change. The theme here is uncomfortable. And yet John was successful. Thousands came to John. People that you would never would have guessed came and got baptized by John. And this flies in the face of any church growth strategy you might hear today. Today, the church growth strategy is preach a very comfortable, unoffensive message, make everything, the music is uh, as comfortable, make everybody feel good, you know, do everything just to not offend anybody, make everybody just feel like everything is fine, and you just go ahead and proceed with your best life now and do all those things. But John the Baptist's ministry was totally opposite. It was to make you feel uncomfortable. Why? Because... They were living in sin. They thought, oh, we're God's chosen people. And they were swollen up with pride. They were so proud of all the righteous deeds that they're like, they had just grown and drifted so far away from God that they weren't even considering that they were the sinners. They looked down upon Gentiles and tax collectors and prostitutes as if y'all are going to hell. We're fine. And John the Baptist comes and says, no, no, you're not. You're not right at all. And What's interesting is baptism is not a New Testament thing. In the Old Testament, Gentiles who wanted to become followers of Jehovah God would get baptized, and they'd be baptized into the nation of Israel, and they would become a follower of God. And so he's basically saying to Israel, y'all think you're Jews, but your hearts are far away from God. You need to get baptized just like this Gentile does. And they're like, really? And so they did. And his ministry was, was very successful. But he did it from not trying to make people feel good, not trying to make people feel comfortable, but making them uncomfortable. And it's interesting that if you have a doctor and they do a diagnosis on you because you're sick and we can't figure out why, and then they come back to you with the MRI and the CAT scan, they're like, look, we got bad news and we got good news. Bad news is you're stage two. You have cancer. The good news is it's very treatable. Now, are you going to be mad at this doctor because he made you feel sick to your stomach and made your whole world rock because of the bad news he just told you? Or are you going to be thankful that they had the courage to tell you the bad news so that you could understand and appreciate the good news? This is what John the Baptist is doing. He's, he's proposing radical surgery. His message is repentance, to turn about. And it, look at this phrase here, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, if you don't understand the grammatical syntax here, you can misread this verse. And there are certain denominations like the Church of Christ and Disciples of Christ who do misread this verse. And they will say that the baptism, this type of baptism is what gives you the forgiveness of sin. And you can read it that way. You put the emphasis on baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Or if you read it properly, in the whole context of the New Testament, it's a baptism, and what gives you the forgiveness of sins? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see the difference there? And like I always teach you, context is king. If you want to, if you want to interpret any verse of the Bible that seems bizarre, look at the context. And in the context of the whole New Testament, do we see that baptism saves or that faith saves? Faith saves. Um, the Philippian jailer thought that all the prisoners had escaped. He's like, oh no, he's about to do Harry Carry and kill himself with a sword. And Paul and Silas come out to the hall and say, hey, don't worry about it, we're all here. And he, who had just beaten them up the night before, whipped them, tortured them, now falls down at their feet and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This would have been a perfect opportunity to say, you need to get baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But they didn't, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in your house. And then after they believe, they got baptized. But people will misinterpret this often. Acts 2.38 says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. 
And this is another verse that if you don't understand the context, if you don't interpret it properly, it can look like baptism will get you the forgiveness of sins. But the word for can mean several things. If I'm going to the store for milk, going to the store will get me milk. But if I'm going to jail for murder, am I going to jail to get murder? Or am I going to jail because of murder? You see, for can mean to provide or to because of, because of. And that's what the word for here means. Let's read it again. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, because of the forgiveness of your sins. You see how that means something totally that makes sense in all the New Testament? Anyway, I want you to understand that properly, but repentance was his theme. Repentance. Repent was the first word of, of John the Baptist and his gospel. Repentance was the first word of Jesus and his gospel. Repent was the first word in the preaching ministry of the 12 disciples. Repent was the first word in the preaching instructions he gave to the disciples after his resurrection to reinforce it. Repent was the first word of exhortation for the first Christian sermon in the book of Acts. Repent was the very first word in the mouth of the Apostle Paul through his ministry. Repent means to do a one in. And this is concerning because so many people say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, why are you a Christian? Oh, because when I was whatever age, I prayed this prayer. I'm like, okay, has your life done a 180? Well, no, I'm still struggling, whatever. And I'm not saying Christians can't struggle. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But we often see in America, the overwhelming majority of people claim to be Christian, although that number is declining, and yet you see no difference whatsoever in their lifestyle. And that's concerning. That's concerning. That's not just my opinion or my assessment. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, on judgment day, multitudes will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. It's not like, well, I knew you, but then you backslid or whatever. No, I never knew you. Millions and millions of religious people will be turned away on the judgment day because there's no true sign of repentance in their life whatsoever. Acts 26 is that they might turn from darkness to light. See the pattern there? From to. From and to. From darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. You see the 180 embedded in both of those parallels there? We talked about parallels this morning, didn't you? Okay. That they may receive the forgiveness of sins. You see, the baptism doesn't provide forgiveness of sins. What does? Repenting. Repentance. Some people say, well, you have to do two things to be saved. You have to turn away from your sin and turn to God. That's really two sides of one coin. When you do a 180, you are turning away from something and to something at the same time. So you are turning from the darkness, from all the evil. And you can say, well, a lost person not that ability to do that. That's right. The about face, God gives them the strength to walk and to follow in the footsteps of Christ. But they have to be the one that's willing to turn, the one that is willing to repent. And, and they're also repenting from the power of Satan to God. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. We all like to think we're in the middle of God. Well, I'm not really that close to God, but I definitely don't live for the devil. Jesus says, hey, there's no fence here. You're either with me or you're against me. Hebrews 6 reinforces this whole idea of repentance. It talks about the foundation of repentance is what? Repentance from dead works. In other words, you think you're good enough to save yourself, and God says, that's dead. Those things are dead. Every religion in the world says, I do this, God gives me this. But biblical, true Christianity says, Christ has done this, so therefore God gives you eternal life. That all your righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. There is none righteous, no, not one. You have to see, see, here's the thing. You not only repent of your sin, you repent of your righteousness. You repent of thinking that somehow you can impress God with all the deeds you've done. And realize, you know what? All that's filthy rags. And that I come to God with empty hands and God, there's nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. And you exercise faith towards God, the from and the to that make up repentance. He goes back, back to uh, Luke, he says in verse 4, he says, it is written. Where is it written? It's written in the book of Isaiah. When is that written? About 665 years before it happened. The prophecy is the voice of one crying where? In the wilderness. If John had been crying at the temple, 
this, this prophecy would not have been fulfilled. But John is crying. He even says, not only where he'd be crying, but what he'd be crying, prepare you the way of the Lord. The word way here means road, right? We have a tollway, a highway, a freeway, a thoroughway, which all those mean road. Prepare the road of the Lord and make his paths straight. So picture any king, if he was going to come visit a town, he would send his entourage ahead and ambassadors ahead and say, hey, the king is coming this fall. You need to get ready for him. Because he's going to be on his chariot, and there's going to be several chariots and horses, and he's not going to have to climb over broken down trees in the road and gullies and all that stuff. You need to level the road. If there's boulders in the way, you need to get them out of the way. If you want the king to come to your town, and everybody did, uh, because number one, it would be good for the economy, but number two, if he came to town and he was not happy, things could go really bad, especially if it was Tiberius Caesar. So they would travel... They would look at the path that the king was going to take, and they would travel that road, fixing everything in the road. Every pothole, every boulder, every fallen tree, every gully. They might build a bridge. They'd make the road as flat and level as possible so that the king would have a smooth trip. And the king would not come unless those things were going to happen. So radical change had to take place to the roads for the king to come. And John is using this as a metaphor. He's basically saying real repentance has to take place in your lives for the king to come in your life. Now, we're not saying you have to clean up your act in order to be saved. If the cleaning up means repentance, if you have to look at the boulders in your road, look at the trees, look at all the obstacles that are keeping you from following Christ and Christ coming in your heart, you have to repent of those things. That's how you remove them. I'm not saying that you have to quit drinking, quit smoking, quit, you know, all those bad things that we talk about when we all have our list. You have to quit those before Christ will come in your life. No, you have to look at all those things and say, those things need to be removed. And Christ, the King, will not only be the one who comes into your life, but the one who will remove them for you. Amen. Zacchaeus, we know about him. He was a wee little man, right? <laughs> and he's up in a tree, and Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to go to your house for dinner tonight. Which, in that culture, was not backwards. We, In our culture, we wait until someone invites you over. In that culture... If you were traveling, you could tell someone, hey, I'm here in town, can I stay at your house? And you would invite yourself over. And so he's like, me? And he comes down, and he says, you know what? I'm going to show you, Jesus, that I really repented. I'm going to give away half of my income to the poor. And anything I've stolen, I'm going to re replace it, not just for what, dollar for dollar, but four times. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Mm. Now, did he say, oh, because you gave away all that money, you're saved? He said, no. The evidence that you're saved is that you're letting go of your idol, which is money. And what idols are in your heart that are keeping Christ from coming, your, becoming your saved? That's why I'm so scared for this generation. Because they are at such a young age, diving into such deep sin, that now when you or I share the gospel with them, they're going to be like, oh, this lifestyle? Am I really willing to give this up? You see, when I got saved, I was nine. The least that I had to repent of was drinking too much chocolate milk. You know, Nowadays, think of what people have to repent of in order to be saved. But God is still on the throne. The Holy Spirit is still real. He can save the worst of these, all, everybody. And, you know, we can all pick and compare our sins, but our sins are all make us lost. And Zacchaeus showed genuine, true repentance. How many of you like to follow the Chosen, the program, right? So uh, season four is coming out, and it's rumored that Zacchaeus is going to be played by Danny DeVito. No, just kidding. Just made that up there. <laughs> now, it's interesting that they would make minor repairs in roads and gullies, but Jesus would say, no, if you want to repent for me to come, you need to make every valley filled up. Can you imagine filling up a valley? How much dirt would it take? You need to take every mountain and bring it down. In other words, Jesus is using a metaphor here. To say radical change. So it's like if you compare being saved to being hit by a car. And I say, hey, have you ever been hit by a car? Well, I don't know. When I was young, but I don't know if it was a real thing or not. But I'm like, what? If you've been hit by a car, you would know it. It'd be life changing. And yet we talk about coming to Christ like, well, yeah, I raised my hand and I filled out the car. And it's like, what? When, when did genuine change take place? 
He goes on to say, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And the key word in verse 6 is all. Because up to this point, only Jews see the salvation of God. We are, God chose us because we are special. Which God told Moses the exact opposite. I didn't choose you because you're special. I chose you because I chose you. And yet the Jews were full of pride and full of arrogance. And God said, no, no, no. The gospel is for everybody. You're going to see a day when Ethiopians, Chinese, Vietnamese, Ukrainian, Russian, Guatemalan, all of them are going to see the salvation of God. And they're like, what? How could this be? And yet that is what the gospel must be. The gospel is the only message in the world that transcends all cultures. You've heard me say before that 80% of any followers of other religions live within a proximity that's close to where it was started. Look about where, look where Islam was started. The majority of people who follow Islam live in that area. Look where Buddhism was started. Look, the majority of the followers. But look at Christianity. It goes all around the globe. It is for all people of all colors. And that's why I am determined, and we are determined as a church, that we will be a multi-ethnic church. We will not be the mostly white church, or the all-black church, or the Hispanic church, or the Chinese church. Do you know within five miles of here, there are six churches that fit that exact demographic? That they are 99% one ethnicity. And it's like, are we loyal to Christ, or are we loyal to our color? We need to be loyal to Christ regardless. We need to be the church that reaches all people, because that's what he said. He said salvation would be for all flesh, for all types of people. He said, therefore, to the crowds, here now John the Baptist says, his crowd's coming, and they're coming him to be baptized. So think about this. Imagine a bunch of people came to church this morning and say, hey, we're here to get baptized. And I say to them, oh, man, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Really glad you're here. But look what John, we can fill in the blank with what they would say, but look what he says. I would say, welcome, everybody. I'm glad you're here. But he says, you brood of vipers. Welcome to church, you bunch of slimy snakes. I mean, is John the Baptist weird or what? He's, he's proven it. But again, he's not being weird to draw attention to himself. He's being weird to point to other people. But he also knows that there's a problem with this crowd. Matthew gives us more detail. He said, but when he saw that many in the crowd, a large majority of the crowd was Pharisees and Sadducees. So he's not just disrespecting generic people. He knows that these people came out to be baptized. This because that was the popular thing to do. He's like, no, no, your hearts aren't right. You haven't repented. He saw those Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Was John being rude? You know, John's not perfect, right? He's not the Messiah. Was this maybe a mistake? Because later we see John the Baptist questioning, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Right? So we could say that wasn't in faith. Maybe this was not in faith. What would Jesus have said? Well, Jesus actually quoted John. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus says, you serpent, you brood of vipers. How are you escaping sentenced to hell? So Jesus is like, yeah, John, John was right. You are a brood of vipers. It's interesting. Uh, anybody follow uh, the Bible Project? Okay, if you listen to their podcast, they have an amazing series right now on the, the, the serpent and the dragon. How the Bible begins with the serpent and it ends with the serpent. All throughout the Bible, you see this theme of a serpent, snake type dragon creature all throughout the Bible. And this is what Jesus is referring to. It goes all the way back to Genesis when the prophecy of the Messiah. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity or hatred or friction between you and and the woman, and watch this, between your offspring, the offspring of the serpent, of the snake, and the offspring of, of Eve, which Jesus was born of the seed of a woman, right? So the children of God are called the offspring of Mary or Eve, and the children of the devil are called the offspring of Satan or the serpent. And so when he calls them a brood of vipers, he's saying you are children of the devil, and this is more fulfillment of the prophecy, all the way back to Genesis. He says, and then he asks this rhetorical question, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? If you were to put this in my life, it's like, who invited you to the party? You know, why are you even here? Nobody invited you, why are you here? And then he tells the whole crowd, you need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as father. Don't even go there. Don't get hung up on how religious you are. And people do that. I, 
I've had conversations with people say, hey, so are you saved? They were born again. Well, I was baptized when I was 12. I didn't ask you if you were baptized. I asked you, are you saved? People always point to the religious experience. In fact, I, this is my personal preference, okay? So don't get mad at me. If, if this is, I'm not going to base this on scripture or say if this verse says don't do this. I don't like handing out baptism certificates. I don't like giving people a piece of paper that says, you know, hey, okay, this is proof you were saved. Because when they have doubts about their salvation, they'll go find a piece of paper and say, look, look I got baptized. And you know what? If, uh, if you got baptized and your faith is in this piece of paper, I think you need to get rid of that piece of paper. Sorry if you needed that piece of paper. <laughs> and that's why, because people will put more faith in the piece of paper than realize, wait a minute, did I really repent and put my faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Or did I just have a religious experience? They were holding on to their religion. He says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones. Now, it's interesting here. This is what jumped out at me as I was studying this passage. He didn't say God is able from stones or from any stones. He said from these stones. These means he's talking about some specific stones. And I tried to do some research on this, and all I can give you is my best guess on this. But he's around the Jordan. Well, what stones do we read about from the Jordan? When Joshua and Israel crossed the Jordan, it was much like the Red Sea with Moses. The water parted. And they told him what? They want one man from every tribe go back into the dry riverbed while the water's waiting for you to close. I want them each to pick up a rock, a big rock big enough to carry, but big enough to make a pile, and they stacked up 12 stones there by the river Jordan, and which river is John the Baptist preaching at? So I'm thinking those stones may still be there, and he's saying, hey, you look at these stones and say, look, we're God's chosen people, and God's saying, hey, God could choose the rocks themselves and make them cry out and praise me if I wanted to. And I think that's maybe what he's referencing. You study and see what you think. He says, even now the ax is laid. We're not pruning this tree, we're not trimming a few rotten branches off. We are laying the axe to the root. We are going to kill the tree. You see what repentance is? It's not like, hey, you better clean up your tree. You need to get a little bit better. Make some self-improvements here and there, and then God will accept you. God says, no, I'm going to kill the tree and give you a new tree. Your old tree is dead. It's gone. It's bearing no fruit. I'm going to give you a new life through Jesus Christ. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit. Man, this is rough talk here. I, you know, I'm not, I don't choose to be a hellfire and brimstone pastor. I, I just preach verse by verse. I mean, these are rough passages. I would like to just make everybody feel good and skip over this. But look at this. Every tree, therefore, does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the what? And what is fire a picture of? <laughs> Jesus talked about hell five times for every one time he talked about heaven. So... We, we would be remiss not to warn people that, that this is a reality. There, there are two ways to get fruit on the branches of a tree. There's two ways you can do it. Uh, one way is you go look at that tree and say, wow, there's no fruit on that. So I go to the HEB and I buy a whole bunch of fruit and I get a stapler out. I staple all the branches, you know. I just think I'm going to get some duct tape. Duct tape works for everything. I put fruit all over that tree and say, okay, look, now the tree has fruit. You say, Gary, you've lost your mind. The other way is that I give life to the tree. And the roots soak up the ingredients from the soil that they need. The sun gives life, and it starts bearing fruit from the bottom up. Amen. But you know what religion says? Just put a few apples on your branches, and you'll look like everybody else. And you'll look like you're religious. But that God's not calling you for religion. He's calling you to a relationship. If you have a fruit problem, it's because you have a root problem. And so John the Baptist is saying, hey, look, you guys, your trees are dead. That's why there's no fruit. And I'm not here to just trim and prune the branches. I'm going to lay an axe to the root. Kill that tree. We're going to start over with a brand new tree. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul explains it this way. Therefore, if anyone is what? In Christ. You're either in Christ or you're not. In Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all has come new. You see, a new creature, a new creation. If I take a pig, pigs love to wallow in what? Mud. Mud. They love it. They feel good in it. And it's funny about the phrase, sweat like a pig. Pigs don't sweat very well. That's why I like to wallow in mud. Okay? That's how they cool off. And I take that pig and I pull him out, put him on a leash, scrub him down, hose him down, soak him up really good, polish his, her toenails, 
put a ribbon in her hair, take it to the fair. She wins the big blue ribbon. Look at that. I have cleaned the pig up. As soon as the pig gets off the leash, where will she go? Straight back to the mud. How do I solve the mud problem? I gotta change the creature. If I could wave a magic wand over it and say, you are no longer a sheep, a, 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 a pig, you are a lamb, you are a sheep. Now all of a sudden, it has white fluffiness and it doesn't like to get muddy. Now all of a sudden, it wants to follow the shepherd. Now all of a sudden, it's eating something different, it's not eating slop, it's eating grass, going to green pastures, still waters, the whole works, it wants to follow the shepherd. Does it every, every now and then stumble and falls in the mud? Sure, it messes up, but its nature is different. It wants to live differently. It doesn't mean it's perfect, but it no longer has the heart of a pig. It has the heart of, of sheep. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. So the crowd said, what then shall we do? So if we truly repented, what do we do now? That's why the then is so important. They're not asking, what do we do? What good works we do to be saved? They're saying, now that we've repented, what then shall we do? And the answer to that, whoever has two tunics, it was very common to have two, okay? You would obviously wear one for warmth. When you slept at night, a lot of times when they travel, you roll up one tunic and you use that as your pillow. If you had two tunics, you would just give one away, which means you were given something away that you probably could use, but you didn't have to have to survive, but it was a sacrifice. And then do the same thing with your food. You got two sandwiches, give one away. And then he says, tax collectors came in to baptize. Now, tax collectors were bad dudes. They were IRS agents on steroids. They were evil, even more evil than today's people, okay? They, they would collect the taxes from the Roman government, for the Roman government, from their own people. Tax collectors were not allowed in synagogues. They were, they were disowned by their family. They would actually have a funeral for a family member who became a tax collector and act like they didn't even exist anymore. And so these guys were coming to be baptized. By the way, you see, all the time you see the phrase about the gospel is tax collectors and sinners. And sinners was a nice way of saying prostitutes. What's, a, what's the deal with tax collectors and prostitutes? Well, tax collectors had money, but no women who wanted to marry them. And prostitutes had what the man wanted, and they, want, they wanted money. So it was a really nice friendship. And that's why you see them hang out together. But now they're repenting. John the Baptist saying, hey, stop doing what you're doing. And he says, be baptized. And they're like, teacher, what shall we do? And again, in order to show that our repentance is real, what should we do? He said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. You see, they would mark it up. They would say, you owe me 50 shekels. They'd say, well, you owe me 70. I'll give you 50 to Rome, I'm gonna keep 20. And so they were allowed to have a certain percentage of markup, but they'd mark up as much as they could, and the Romans were fine with it. So it was basically extortion, and they were robbing people. Soldiers, which were like the police force of the day, they're enforcing the laws, also asked them, and what, what shall we do? to show true repentance, show that we really have repented. He said, and don't extort money for anybody. In those days, a Roman soldier would say, hey, I saw you steal that, that dog or that horse. And you're like, what, I didn't do anything. I did, I saw you. Like, no, really, I didn't do anything. Well, you can make all this go away by giving me some shekels. Okay, so it was basically extortion. They accused him of things that were not true. In fact, he even says how he extorted by threats or by false accusations. Just be content with what Rome is paying you and stop trying to get some extra money and tips from us. So basically, he, he narrows this down to sharing, caring, and sparing. Sharing what you have, caring for other people, and sparing them of your, your evil sins and your deeds. And this is the way they showed true repentance. So imagine you go to court, and you've been accused of being a Christian. And Christianity is illegal. My question is, is there, is there enough evidence, as Josh McDowell asked the question, is there enough evidence to convict you? Could people, if they brought your family members, they brought your coworkers up, and they had them testify against you, and they said, hey, Jane Doe over here, she, she claims to be a Christian. Do you have any evidence to think she's, no, I, I mean, she goes to church every now and then, but I, I've never seen any real change in her life. That she lives probably worse than I do. John Smith over here, he, he claims to be a Christian. Do you think he's a Christian? No. I think Christians read the Bible. I never see them read the Bible. I, I see them, they, they use the F-bomb just as much as anybody else at work does. And they're like, when has true repentance ever taken place? Where is the fruit? John is begging for fruit. 
And we can either religiously attach it to our tree, or we can let Jesus chop the tree down and give us new life and start all over by being born again. The third thing we see here is John's meekness was refreshing. All four Gospels talk about John in great detail. He's a fascinating character. He's important. Jesus said, of all the men to this point who have been born of women, nobody's greater than him. So we can learn a lesson here from that. John could have been very egotistical about Jesus making that statement, but he goes in the opposite direction. He says, as the people were in expectation, man, if ever there was a group of people who wanted the Messiah to come, this was it. The world stunk. The world was horrible, and they're please let the Messiah come. And they're like, hey, have you heard about John the Baptist? I think he might be it. And so John's getting all his attention because he might be the Messiah. And so all of them were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ or the Messiah. John answered them. He said, no, 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 let's put that to rest really quick. I'm just baptizing with water. I mean, just simple water. It's not even pretty water. It's the Jordan, okay? It's nothing. Remember when... um, who was the guy at leprosy in the Old Testament? Oh, I'm blanking out. What? Nahum, thank you. Nahum was told by Elijah, go baptize, go, go dump seven times in the Jordan. He's like, Jordan? He said, we've got much prettier rivers than this. Where I came from, you're going to have to go down these muddy waters. So he's baptizing this water that's not that great. He said, this is all I have to offer you. But he who is mightier than I is coming. In other words, I'm not the Messiah, the mighty one. And, and he is so amazing, he is so mighty that I'm not even worthy to, if he said, hey, take my shoes off, I'm not even worthy to touch the strap of his sandals. In those days, people had servants who do things like that. You come on walking, and you sit down at the table, you put your feet out, a servant would bring you a bowl, a bowl of water, and they would unstrap your laces. Now, if you had Jewish servants, you're like, well, you're Jewish, don't do this. Let me get a Gentile servant to do that. So the lowest of the low would be the ones who would unstrap you. And John says, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals, his dirty, nasty, stinky, smelly sandals. I'm not even worthy to untie them. In John 3.30, here was John's attitude. He, Jesus, must increase. And read the rest with me. But I must decrease. This is the Christian life. That every day, as I spend time with the Lord, in his word, on my knees, that you would see less of Gary and more of Jesus. He must increase. That people would say, wow, that person just, they're different. You can tell that there's something about them. They just seem so Christ-like. And they're not always talking about themselves. They're not always bragging about themselves. In fact, they really don't care much about themselves. It's not like they have low self-esteem and they're flagellating themselves. No, they're just not thinking about themselves. They're, They're always thinking about others and how to be Christ-like. John's meekness was refreshing. We live in a day where most evangelists and pastors go the opposite direction. They're dressed, they got the latest drip, they got the latest vehicle, they got the Rolex, they got the mansions, and they're like, look at me, look at me, how powerful I am. And their names are on everything. And John goes the totally opposite direction. My son Adrian lives up in northwest Arkansas, and he goes to this church right here, Fellowship Bible Church. And he shared with me just a few days ago that they have multiple elders who rotate prep preaching, and it's not like there's a celebrity pastor like that. And he said, in fact, here's their churches, uh, like the, what their leadership talks about, that we want our leadership's fingerprints to be everywhere and our names nowhere. In other words, we're so involved with the details of the church, we're ministering to everybody everywhere and trying to serve as many people as possible, putting our fingerprints everywhere, but we don't want our names anywhere. In fact, you struggle in the church bulletin or on the website to find out who these guys are because they so want to be in the, in the background and they want Christ to be the one who shines. And I think that's a great way of ministry. Galatians 2.20, listen to what Paul says about it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That sounds a lot like John the Baptist, doesn't it? Then Paul gives the key to how he and John could be so humble, how they could be so meek. Listen to the rest of the passage. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, and here's the key, who loved me and gave himself for me. You struggle with pride? Remind yourself that Jesus loved you while you were a sinner. 
that God demonstrated his love toward you, us while we were still sinners. And yet Christ loved you anyway. When you realize that before you were saved, how unworthy you were, and Christ went to the cross anyway, that is a message that will keep us humble. That I did not deserve any of this, and in the end, put it in perspective that I'm saved. So much of my neighborhood's going to hell. They don't even know Jesus that I know and love. Oh my gosh, and he chose me? I need to go tell them. And not to get like the Israelis like feeling on high horse, like, well, we're God's chosen people. No, being chosen should humble you and not be a factor of pride. Remind yourself of all that Jesus did to, to love you. So we saw that John's ministry was revolutionary. John's message was repentance. John's meekness was refreshing. And that brings us to our last point here. John's Messiah was righteous. John's Messiah was righteous. See, the Messiah, one of the biggest... There was the threefold office of the Messiah was prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, you saw some people who were prophets, but not kings or priests. You saw some kings who were actually a prophet, but not a priest. You saw some people do one role. You saw a few people do two roles, but nobody did three for three. You would know he's the Messiah because he would be the prophet, the priest, and the king. In other words, part of his role would be he would be a judge. You remember Solomon judging and, and, and remember the whole baby, cut the baby in half, all that? The king's role was being the ultimate Supreme Court judge of the land. And so there's nothing more nauseating than a judge who is corrupt. Have you seen what's happening to the city of San Francisco? It used to be a beautiful city. And now it's just a homeless camp. And there's zombies, literally zombies, full of fentanyl, walking the streets. And what happened is there's people, evil people, who knew that they couldn't change the laws of California. So what they would do is they would elect people who would not enforce the law. And so now you're seeing people going into stores, grabbing a handful of stuff and walking out because they know that when you go before the judge, the judge is going to say, case dismissed. Did you know that I think it's 87% of the crime in New York City, this, is, this blew me away, is committed by the same 650 people? We're talking a city of millions and millions and millions of people, and the majority of the crime is done by a, a, few, a handful of people because they figured out you can steal all you want, and these judges will not prosecute you. Jesus will prosecute. They're like, this is a righteous judge. He will give you the full extent of the law. But here's the thing. He's the one who paid the full extent of the law. He will say, you're guilty, and your punishment is death. The wages of sin is death, but guess what? I paid the punishment for you. Now I can say, righteously, your case is dismissed. It says, he, Jesus, will baptize you with, or immerse you, what's the word baptism means, to immerse you in. He'll immerse you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, a lot of people like to tie this together and say that the Holy Spirit and fire is a good thing. There are, you do see in Acts chapter uh, 2, where tongues light fire, and so you do see an association with the Holy Spirit and fire, and several times in the Bible, okay, I'm not saying that's not true, but this is not it, okay? You don't want to be baptized, you don't want to be immersed in fire. <laughs> that means you go to hell, okay? And, and, and you say, well, Gary, that's your interpretation. No, use the, use the Hebrew parallelism, let the context interpret, look at the rest of the passage. He explains it. His winnowing fork is in his hand. In other words, harvest has taken place, here's all this big pile of wheat. How do you separate the wheat from the chaff? You stick the winnowing fork in there, you throw it up in the air, the wheat, because it's heavy, will go come right back down. The wind will blow away the chaff, and you're separating the wheat from the chaff. And he says, and he'll gather the wheat into his barn, which is a picture of heaven, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there, he just interpreted the passage for you. The Holy Spirit, you're immersed in that, you're saved. If you're lost, you're immersed in fire. Barn, unquenchable fire. The passage interprets itself. So wheat and chaff. Wheat grains and chaff, from a distance, they look an awful lot alike. It's like people who claim to be Christians. Some are the real deal, some are the chaff. And again, I can't say this enough. We're not saying this in a judgmental way. You were chaff before Christ came to you. You weren't even seeking Christ, and he sought you. So how do you separate the two? Well, I mentioned before, the wind is what separates. What is the wind a picture of in the Bible? A picture of two things, judgment, See judgment coming from the four winds of the earth. You see that all throughout the Old Testament and, and in Revelation. But also, who is a picture in John chapter 3 of the wind? The Holy Spirit. 
who brings the judgment, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that separates the wheat from the chaff. And how does he do it? He brings about difficult times. You see, as Christianity becomes more and more persecuted, we're going to see who's the wheat and who's the chaff. Attendance, church attendance in America is going down drastically. And it's not just COVID anymore. It's not popular to be a Christian. The winds of judgment are blowing, and the wheat and the chaff are separating. 2 Corinthians 7 says this way, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Godly grief is like, oh God, I am sorry I've offended you. Oh God, I am sorry I've sinned against you. And that's without regret. Whereas worldly grief is, oh, I'm sorry I got caught. Okay, all right, I'll, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. You know, and it's a repentance that's not genuine. What does that produce? It produces death. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins. Whose sins? My sins. The righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, Gary, that he might bring us, lost sinners, to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ has paid the price of the judgment for us. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you accepted that free gift of salvation that Jesus offers? Here's how you do it. It says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you repent, you are no longer Lord of your life, you give up on your plans, your goals, your dreams, and just say, hey, Lord, I give them all to you. I'm no longer going my way, I am going your way, and I will follow you. At the moment you do that, that's called repentance. You believe that God raised him from the dead. He died for your sins, he was buried. If you will do that, what does this verse say you will be? You'll be saved. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the boldness of John the Baptist. Lord, may we be like him. Father, I pray that we wouldn't seek to be popular. We would seek to be in right standing with you. That we would be vocal about our faith, but not in an arrogant way. Because Lord, we have nothing to be proud of. Everything is for your glory. You're the one who is righteous, not us. But because you traded places with us, we have a, a need to go, a need to tell. Help us to be like beggars who found bread, telling other beggars where they can find it too. And Father, if there's one here in, the, in God's house that doesn't know you, they're, they're the chaff that look like wheat, but they've never truly repented, I pray that today would be their day. That they would give up on themselves and repent of their dead works and trust in the work of Christ on the cross. And we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you still have questions about becoming a Christian, there's my number. You can call me or text me anytime. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Um, if you can think of someone you'd love to hear messages like this, get one of the cards out there. Give it away. It has a QR code on the back where I share the gospel. So you can share that with anybody. All right, we're going to move into question and answer time. Let's see. Um, Jabari, you want to help me with that? All right, so if you, um, if you have a question, you can text that in. Or you can raise your hand if you'd rather do it that way. Um, one of the questions that was left over from last week that we didn't get to was about um, predestination versus free will. Okay? And that's been a controversy in, you know, in churches for thousands of years. And the problem is, with all issues, we as humans have trouble finding balance. We either go to one side of the pendulum or we go to the other side. And um, people will often call the debate uh, Calvinist versus Armenian. I don't think that's fair because Armenians believe you can lose your salvation and that there's no election whatsoever. I wouldn't fall into that camp. I also don't call myself a Calvinist because I don't believe in limited atonement. Limited atonement means that Christ died for only the elect. But how many verses of the Bible do you know where it says Christ died for the sins of the world? And that it's just, when the plain truth, when the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. I mean, it's, anyway, I could go into that much, much longer. But does the Bible teach predestination election? It absolutely does. And you say, well, Gary, how can both be true? That God is totally sovereign, and that he chose you before the foundations of the world, and yet at the same time, he says, whosoever will may come. I don't know. <laughs> and like I told you before, it's like Jesus is 100% man. He, he suffered, he was hungry, he got tired, he did everything but not sin. 100% man. 
But yet, was he also not 100% God? Yes, but mathematically, you can't be 200% of anything. But Jesus did. So how can you have total free will and be held responsible for your sin and be judged on Judgment Day, and yet God says, but I chose you? I don't know. Okay? I think to try to explain that, reduce it down to um, something that our little brains can handle is to try to reduce God. There are some things that are called irreducible complexities, and that's one of them. All right. Any, other, any questions? Okay. Oh, hi, hi, Natalie. Natalie's alive. Okay. Y'all being quiet this morning. No questions? We had leftover questions last week. All right. Well, then let's go ahead and stand. And let's read this blessing over one another as you go out into your week to be salt and light. Join me on verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you all. Dismiss.